It's 2017. Time to give NPR One a try. Our app for public radio stories and all your favorite podcasts. Find NPR One, O-N-E, in your app store. And hey, NPR has a new show. It's called 1A, and it's your daily detox from the social media echo chamber, which is to say, civil discourse with people who don't always agree. Check out 1A with Joshua Johnson from WAMU and NPR on the NPR One app or at npr.org slash podcasts. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our first episode of 2017, which is off to an interesting start. We're going to talk about House Republicans deciding, then undeciding, to weaken the independent office of congressional ethics and other action from the first day of the new Congress. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Scott Tetro. I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. And since I've got you here, let's talk about the new Star Wars movie. Best droid ever. (laughs) Okay, seriously, though, there's a lot going on. Where to begin? Well, today was the first day of the 115th Congress. But even before they could be sworn in, late Monday night, news broke that House Republicans had agreed in a closed-door meeting to embed a surprising change in the House rules. Now, we should say this happens every time there's a new Congress. The House votes on the rules that they'll abide by for that session. But House GOP leaders decided the new rules package would include this major change to something called the Office of Congressional Ethics. And Scott? So you already have the House Ethics Committee, which is the main place that investigates uh, possible sketchiness by lawmakers. Or doesn't. Or doesn't. And this was a separate office that did its own investigations. And uh, uh, these changes would have weakened that separate office in several different ways. Okay. First let's of go all, for it. they would have no longer allowed anonymous tips, which is a, a pretty a big deal because if you're a House staffer and you think there's something ethically sketchy going on and you bring a complaint, that's probably not the best step for your career if it's about the office you work in. Right. So, or even another one that uh, might, you know, possibly be just down the hall, but that you might know something about. But but members, the justification was members were sort of bristling at the idea that they could have to go through this investigative process and not even know who their accuser is. Right. And that was the big uh, complaint from, from lawmakers who wanted to change this process. But uh, let's circle back to that in a second. The other things that this would have done would have allowed the House Ethics Committee to stop any investigations that were taking place. And the third thing it would have done is would have not allowed the office to talk to the public at all. <laughs> I believe it actually got rid of their communications uh, staffers. Literally. So this really basically declawed this outside office on a lot of different fronts um, and would have basically brought it completely under the control of the House Ethics Committee, which has been criticized by good government groups for for often sitting on its hands and moving very slowly in these investigations. Now, the Ethics Committee is a bipartisan committee. It is equal parts. But that doesn't necessarily it hasn't necessarily led to. It's been a bit of a toothless uh, enforcement at times and uh, not always. I mean, there were people who got investigated by the House Ethics Committee, including a speaker uh, back uh, some years ago. In the 1980s, Jim Wright. Oh, Jim Wright was forced out. Uh, After a House Ethics Committee investigation, later on, they were going after Newt Gingrich, uh, who was also speaker and had been responsible largely for driving out Jim Wright. So we have seen some heavy activity from the House Ethics Committee, but it was not entirely uh, satisfactory in its performance of those duties in more recent years after those two big cases that I just referenced. So they had a feeling in the 
period of time right after the Democrats had taken control, majority control of the House in the 2006 election, that it was time to create something more independent, something that could actually look out into what was in the media and take in tips and take in information and not always be under the thumb of a members-dominated, that's the key, a members-dominated internal committee of the House. Okay, so... How did this actually happen? I mean, it was behind closed doors, Scott, but what happened to to put this in motion? So a lot of lawmakers, they didn't really like this office. They didn't like the fact that its investigations often become public before there's any resolution. Uh, A big theme of last year's election was the fact that you may be under investigation is bad politically, even if that investigation doesn't lead to anything. Not referencing any specific presidential candidate with that comment, but a, a, a lot of lawmakers just wanted to change this office. They wanted to to kind of bring it under the control of the Ethics Committee, and they decided they were going to do this right now. So last night, this comes up in caucus, and uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan and Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy both told members, we don't think this is a good idea. Don't do it. This is bad timing. <laughs> this This is going to be the first thing that people talk about. It's going to be, you know... Right off the bat, you want to kind of change ethics rules. Not good optics. That's right. No, this is like in the department of really bad optics. And they were right. But let's bear in mind that there was also a lot of strong feeling that's been building up through the eight years that this office has existed on the part of both Democrats and Republicans, that this wasn't the way to discipline themselves. Now, they might realize that without something like this, there wouldn't be any discipline. That might be just fine by them. But... It was not just Republicans who were disliking this. It, at, at this point, with the Democrats able to pose for holy pictures and say, oh, we're all for this office of congressional ethics. But the fact is there were quite a few Democrats who were not happy with it either. The surprising thing here is that it was not possible, apparently, in the closed-door meeting on Monday night for Ryan and McCarthy to just shut this down and say, no, 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 we're not going to do that today. We're not going to do that on our watch. We're not going to do that with the whole world watching. This is really bad timing for bad optics. So speaking of bad optics, uh, as Donald Trump was sort of making his closing argument in his presidential campaign, he started using this phrase, drain the swamp, or hashtag DTS. I'm going to go to Washington, D.C., and I am going to drain the swamp. The great irony here is that Nancy Pelosi, then brand new Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, now minority leader again, in the floor speech she gave arguing for the creation of the Office of Congressional Ethics, what phrase did she use? When I became Speaker of the House, I said it was necessary to drain the swamp. That is Washington, D.C., so that the people will understand that we are here for the people's interest. Eight years ago. Yeah. Um, So this, of course, leads to much criticism, very loud criticism from Democrats, from regular Americans who called their members of Congress saying, wait, what happened to draining the swamp? And it puts Ryan and McCarthy in the position Tuesday morning of defending a move that they thought was a bad idea and saying, well, no, these changes are needed. Uh, the, the committee's still going to have power. These are necessary changes and reforms. This is not making the committee totally toothless. This is worth doing. And then... 
(laughs) (laughs) And then the big guy weighs in. Yes. Then Then we get a tweet from Donald Trump. Now, the exact timing of when that tweet came out and when... Uh, Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy issued their statements in defense of this seemingly indefensible move at this particular time. A little unclear, all happening in kind of rapid succession on Tuesday morning. But Donald Trump put out a double tweet because he needed more than 140 characters to wit. Here we go. With all that Congress has to work on, do they really have to make the weakening of the independent ethics watchdog, as unfair as it may be, their number one act and priority? Focus on tax reform, health care, and so many other things of far greater importance. Hashtag DTS, drain the swamp. So this uh, this is in the 10 o'clock hour, and that's right before uh, Kevin McCarthy does a, a press conference with reporters that I was at where he was kind of defensive and saying, well, yeah, that's basically what I said last night. And then Republicans still wanted to do this anyway. But uh, he was asked, well, now that Trump has weighed in against this, do you think that will affect this afternoon's vote? And do you think this vote might fail? And and he has said this philosophical thing that is my favorite, like, politics in 2017 comment I've heard so far. He said the president-elect, if he tweets, could that affect people? Yes. It's sort of philosophical. It's like almost Yoda-like. And he was right, because right after that, then Republicans suddenly realized this might have been a mistake. They gather together again in another closed-door caucus and decide... Just kidding. And they pull the language (laughs) from the rules. You know, just to to put this in context, in in the same 24-hour period, we have Donald Trump tweeting about uh, jobs that are not going to move to Mexico, that are Ford Motor Company jobs, and uh, essentially saying, you know, through my exhortations and my rhetoric, I have uh, lessened the number of Ford jobs that are going to be in Mexico by 600 jobs. And also another tweet having to do with North Korea, which had announced that it was working on a weapon that would soon allow them to uh, bring nuclear war to at least some portion of the United States. One suspects that might be Alaska. But Donald Trump immediately said, not going to happen via Twitter. So we are into the age of government by Twitter by Donald Trump. You know, one of the remarkable things about that Trump tweet about the Office of Congressional Ethics is that he doesn't seem to be explicitly taking issue with the idea, but rather with the timing and the optics. Yeah, he he seems to agree with the complaints that a lot of Republicans have about this committee. He's just saying, eh, maybe not right off the bat, guys. So Republicans say they're going to revisit this later on. They're going to do so also consulting with Democrats, which was one of Ryan's complaints. He said, you know, if you're going to make ethical changes, you should talk to the other party, too. Okay, but before we let Donald Trump take a victory lap on this. Which he will do in any event. Was this a result of his tweet or was his tweet a result of the very loud public outcry. I mean, people were calling their members of Congress. I had somebody tweet at me that they tried calling their member of Congress and they couldn't get through because so many people were calling the member of Congress. You know, there can be some of both. I don't think there's any reason to think that Donald Trump was not aware that there was a huge public outcry or that people in the public outcry uh, could not see this the way that Donald Trump was seeing it. They were reacting to the same thing in much the same way. The difference, of course, is that Donald Trump is now the leader of the Republican Party and the Republican uh, government in Washington. And for him to weigh in on this in this highly unusual, extraordinary way, cannot think of uh, a precedent for a president getting involved in the House rules package. Or a Uh, not even president yet. Not even president, exactly, a a president-elect. That is obviously going to get a lot of attention. But but I think all the stuff that played out today 
raises a lot of questions for what will happen when House and Senate Republicans do the things that conservatives have wanted to do for a long time, and they have a really long laundry list of, of, of policies they want to push forward to. But Donald Trump was a very unorthodox Republican running for president. There's a lot of things that he disagreed with them on, things like not wanting to make changes to Social Security, not wanting to make changes to Medicare. These are things that Democrats are very happy to frequently remind their Republican colleagues that Trump said on the campaign trail. It makes you wonder what could happen if congressional Republicans want to go down one road and Donald Trump disagrees with them. If he tweets uh, saying it's a bad idea, I mean, what what does that do? Stay tuned. Okay, but... Other things happened in Congress today, like, for instance, they convened and they picked their leaders. They did. Paul Ryan, this is really surprising and breaking news, <laughs> Paul Ryan is going to be the Speaker of the House. And Nancy Brace Pelosi yourselves. is going to be the minority leader. <laughs> yeah, they. Uh, this was, was kind of the first act of, of the House when it came into session. They had a big formal vote where every member stood up and announced who they wanted to vote for Speaker. All but one Republican voted for Ryan. All but four Democrats voted for Nancy Pelosi. Uh, they both kind of gave their speeches outlining where they see things going this year. And and Ryan gave an interesting speech that kind of uh, he almost sounded a little bit incredulous to find himself in this position. And I I still kind of get that feeling too, time and time again, because there were so many moments this year where it looked like this election was totally going off the rails for the Republicans. And yet they control the House, they control the Senate, they control the White House soon, and they can really roll through all these policies they've wanted to do for years. And and you could kind of hear it in Ryan's voice when he talked about this today. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. This is the kind of thing that most of us only dreamed about. I know because I used to dream about this a lot. <laughs> the people have given us unified government. And it wasn't because they were feeling generous. It was because they want results. And then Ryan also kind of gave a nod to the fact that, that this, is, this is a big populist movement that happened this year, which doesn't always line up with Republican ideals, saying that, that, that people who have been ignored by Washington let out their roar this year. For years, they've suffered quietly quietly amid shuttered factories and shattered lives. But now, now they have let out a great roar. Now we, their elected representatives, must listen. And how long has Paul Ryan been in Washington? A while. Yeah, okay. Long time. (laughs) But he's feeling the roar. Uh, He felt the roar yelled at him at many times over the last few years. He's just trying to kind of ride that roar and reposition it now. When he was at odds with Donald Trump's uh, campaign during the fall and refused to have Donald Trump come to Wisconsin to attend a rally that he was holding, many of the people who did attend that rally who were Donald Trump fans were booing Paul Ryan. So yes, he has heard the roar and he knows that it is is unhappy, that it is deep, and that it is going to be ongoing. Okay, before we wrap, let's talk about what's happening Wednesday, when most of you will be listening to this. Um, On Wednesday, President Obama is having a big meeting with congressional Democrats to discuss how they could work to preserve some of the Affordable Care Act. Mike Pence, Vice President-elect Mike Pence, will also be up there talking to Republicans about, among other things, how they can repeal the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. what do we know about these meetings and uh, especially the, the strategy for Democrats going forward? Well, Democrats are in a tricky position because Republicans have the ability to to defang Obamacare, to defund Obamacare in a way where they don't need any Democratic votes at all to do it. You know, it it's a process called budget reconciliation. The, f- <laughs> the first step 
of that was taken today. And to make a long story short, and we're going to revisit this many times over the next few months, uh, it's a way to pass something in the Senate with just 51 votes as opposed to the 60 votes that you typically need to, to have a bill go forward, which, of course, would need some Democrats to back it. So what? long story short, Republicans, if they're all on the same page, could basically repeal Obamacare without Democratic support. But they need Democrats on board in some way, shape or form to create the replacement. So Democrats have to figure out, do they want to just block everything? And if the health care system totally falls apart, say that's the Republicans fault. Or do they want to keep as much of Obamacare as they can? And this repeal, it it can't fully repeal Obamacare. So it can just like take away the things that are money related. That's right. The budget reconciliation means that you're only talking about taxes, spending, or reducing the deficit. So unless you're doing one of those three things, you can't get away with just a 51-vote majority in the Senate. But that includes things like the massive Medicaid expansion. That includes the subsidies that help people pay for Obamacare on the individual market. And the mandate that everybody has to have health insurance, which is the the part that kind of creates the pool to to allow uh, all the other stuff to happen, too. That's right. The mandate is not a policy. It's a tax. And that's according to the Supreme Court. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote, it survives as a tax. Otherwise, it would have all been unconstitutional. So basically, though, if you take away the individual mandate, which the insurance companies say is the only reason they are able to make this system work, and you take away the Medicaid expansion, one, you're potentially taking health insurance away from something like 20 million people. Or more, maybe maybe more like 30 when you start thinking about how the Medicaid sorts out. And then that sort of could easily destabilize the whole darn thing. Yeah. The, ho- the whole idea of private health insurance existing in a hybrid system, sort of 50-50 with government, which has about half of the total of uh, health care delivery and the multi-trillion dollar industry in this country. Uh, the whole idea of that is based on some sort of balance, some kind of quid pro quo. If you change that by taking away the money that the insurance companies get for participating in Obamacare, all the things that people want from Obamacare, like coverage, like uh, no denial for pre-existing conditions, like keeping your child on your family plan until they're 26, all that goes away. Which is why the scenario that Donald Trump has laid out of, I'd like to keep a lot of those things, but I want to get rid of the mandate, doesn't really make sense from a policy perspective. You need to force people into the pool to have all the things that are popular. So let's say the Republicans all agree let's get rid of this thing, let's scrap it, let's repeal it. Does that all go away immediately? Or are they talking about maybe some sort of delayed thing because they aren't talking about a replacement yet? It's not repeal and replace anymore. It's repeal and negotiate. Repeal (laughs) and delay. And we're talking about many months in all likelihood, uh, possibly even more than months, more like years, before Obamacare would fully go away unless someone has some sort of magic machine, magic bullet, by which this necessity for the private insurance companies to be made whole goes away. And that's something that there's not one official policy or, or proposal yet from Republicans. They're all still trying to figure this out, too. Okay. A couple of other things. Um, We now know that President Obama will give a farewell address in Chicago on January 10th. Presidents do give farewell addresses. uh, And and likely one would think that President Obama will be defending his legacy or, or trying to lay out what he believes 
he accomplished as president. Yes, this is what presidents do. It's sort of the other end of the inaugural address, and he will lay out the case for his historical achievements, and he will make a case for keeping them in place, and he will suggest to people how they ought to remember his years and how they ought to be aspiring for America's next era. And as we wind down the Obama administration, for the last time, in his role as president of the Senate, Vice President Joe Biden today uh, swore in all of the senators who were elected and reelected in the 2016 election. And it's, you know, it's, it's there's the big official one on the Senate floor, but then there's a ceremonial swearing in where members stand with the Bible and their spouses and their many grandchildren and great grandchildren. And it has become sort of a tradition uh, for Vice President Joe Biden to say and do things that no other person... Borderline creepy. Borderline Sometimes creepy. Sometimes he's creepy. So the lucky recipient of uh, this year's Creepy Times with Joe Biden Award is Chuck Grassley and his wife. Um, and, and we have a little bit of the audio, uh, which does not do it justice. Chuck! I get to it. Boy, man. And, and now, Biden served in the Senate for a long time. He's very friendly with these people. Um... And when Grassley, who's a Republican, his wife, they walk up and, and Joe Biden appears to give her a kiss on the lips. Good to see you. <laughs> All right. So so this happens every year with Biden. But actually, something happened on the other side of the Congress that was just as funny today when uh, Paul Ryan was doing the same thing with with House members doing ceremonial swearings in. And I didn't get the name of which lawmaker it was, but I saw a clip where his son, his teenage son, is holding the Bible and right before they take the picture with with his dad and with Paul Ryan, the kid goes into a dab mode, and Ryan just stares at him and he goes, "Do you want to hang out? Okay. What? Do you have to sneeze or something? You're gonna sneeze? Is that it? Yeah. Uh, he's sneezing. Like, <laughs> well, put your put your hands down. Because it's, <laughs> it's the bat wing. We've all been taught now. You don't cough and sneeze into your hand. You put up the bat wing. I think he was politely telling the kid he was being an idiot. But... Yes. Well, the kid. Uh, <laughs> win some sort of prize for attempting to dab in his poor father's official photo. But unlike Loretta Sanchez's dab, this was an unsuccessful dab, and he got into the right position for the photo to be taken. (laughs) All right, that's it for this episode. Your usual reminder, there is a lot going on in politics. We can't cover everything on the podcast, but the start of the year is a great time to get acquainted with your local public radio station. That's where you can hear a lot more of our political coverage. We'll be back in your feed with our weekly roundup on Thursday evening. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.